This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 26 Crime and Punishment Quote, if some ruler thought that stealing two pennies deserved death, while killing an innocent child deserved the fine of two cents, many Christian teachers would have no objective way to demonstrate the injustice of this arrangement. End quote. Scripture has taught us that a distinctively Christian approach to political morality calls for recognition of the civil magistrate's obligation to rule according to the dictates of God's revealed law. We have likewise observed that the key function of the civil magistrate as God himself presents it in his written word, is that of bearing the sword as an avenger of wrath against evildoers. Civil rule is a ministry of justice aiming to punish criminals in accord with the revealed will of God. When we combine this connection with the biblically-based belief that God's law is binding in every detail until and unless the lawgiver reveals otherwise, we come to the conclusion that the civil magistrate today ought to apply the penal sanctions of the Old Testament law to criminals in our society, once they have been duly tried and convicted by adequate evidence. Thieves should be made to offer restitution, rapists should be executed, perjurers should suffer the penalty they would have inflicted on the accused, etc. Quite simply, civil magistrates ought to mete out the punishment which God has prescribed in his word. When one stops to reflect on this proposition, it has an all-too-obvious truthfulness and justice about it. Quote, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? End quote. Genesis 18.25 If civil magistrates are indeed ministers of God who avenge his wrath against evildoers, who better would know what kind and degree of punishment is appropriate for every crime than the Lord? And where would he make this standard of justice known but in his word? The penal sanctions for crime should be those revealed in the law of the Lord. That makes perfectly good sense. The Necessity, Equity, and Agency of Punishment God has not only laid down certain stipulations for how people should live in society together, for example, forbidding stealing, he has also backed up those stipulations, rendering them more serious than divine recommendations, with penal sanctions to be imposed on those who disobey his dictates, for example, offering restitution. A law without such supporting penalties would not be a law at all. Now, in the case of certain Old Testament commandments, there was laid down a dual sanction against the offender. A murderer, for instance, would not only undergo the eternal wrath of God after his death, but he would also need to undergo the temporal and social penalty which God prescribed for the civil magistrate to apply, in this case, the death penalty. Not all of God's commandments carried this dual sanction, for not all sins are likewise crimes within the state. It is wicked to lust after a woman, but the civil magistrate can neither convict nor punish for lust. When lust becomes adultery, however, then God has stipulated certain measures to be taken by his ordained deputy in the state. Where God has prescribed it in his word, such civil punishments for crime are quite necessary. Indeed, Paul can say that the law of God was enacted precisely for dealing with public criminals, murderers, perjurers, homosexuals, and the like. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8-10. The destruction of the wicked is a proper goal of a godly magistrate. Psalm 101, verse 8 so that he may root out all evil, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 12, and chapter 19, verse 19, and protect the righteous of the land, Psalm 125, 3, Proverbs 12, 21. 
Such civil penalties against crime are to be executed without mercy or pity to the criminal. Deuteronomy 19.13 and verse 21. Deuteronomy 25.12, Hebrews 10.28. Lest judges become respecters of persons, looking upon the face of criminals and deciding according to some standard other than strict justice, who should pay the price of his wrongdoing? Besides, when judges let proven criminals go unpunished, they in effect punish those who have been wronged by the criminal in the first place. As Luther once wrote, quote, If God will have wrath, what business do you have being merciful? What a fine mercy to me it would be to have mercy on the thief and murderer, and let him kill, abuse, and rob me, end quote. So scripture teaches that civil penalties are necessary. The magistrate is not to carry his sword in vain. Not only are such penal sanctions necessary in society, they must also be equitable. The measure of punishment according to the just judge of all the earth is to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, no less but no more. For example, Exodus chapter 21 verses 23 through 25 and Deuteronomy 19:21. The punishment must be commensurate with the crime, for it is to express retribution against the offender especially when one compares the biblical code of penal sanctions with those in other ancient civilizations, does it become apparent how just and wise God's laws are. They are never outweighed, lenient, cruel, or unusual. Far from being arbitrary, they are laid down with a view to perfect justice in social affairs. Indirectly, these penal sanctions will become a deterrent to crime in others. For example, Deuteronomy 17.13 and 19.20. But they are designed to punish a person retributively. Quote, according to his fault, end quote. Deuteronomy 25.2. That is why, for instance, those who commit capital crimes are said in the Bible to have committed a sin worthy of death. Deuteronomy 21.22. God always prescribes exactly what a crime deserves. The stringency of the penalty is proportioned to the heinousness of the deed. His punishments are thus always equitable. The agency which God enlists for executing his just and necessary penalties in society for crimes is the civil magistrate. The reason why, by men, the blood of offenders may be shed is given in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, namely because man was created in the image of God. Man can reflect the judgments of God against criminals because men, those appointed to this task, are the image of God, able to understand and apply his standards of civic rectitude. Paul described the civil magistrate as ordained by God, one who bears not the sword in vain, because he is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath against evildoers. Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Without such authorization, the punishment of one man by another would be pure presumption, the perpetration by one group of a misdeed against another individual or group. The very notion of public justice, the right surpassing considerations of might, is rooted in the assumption that God's direction stands behind the function of the civil magistrate in society. Given that fact, it is only natural that the standard by which the magistrate should mete out penalties to criminals ought to be the revealed law of God. Unwillingness to endorse the law. Yet not all Christian teachers are willing to grant that point. Those who deny the validity of the penal sanctions found in the revealed law of God, however, rarely have cogent and clear alternatives to offer. When they do, these alternatives rarely stem from a Christian standpoint. Moreover, those advocating criminal penalties apart from God's revealed law hardly ever show a willingness to stand behind or defend the fairness and justice of their specific proposals. 
In short, those who demur at the idea of having a current-day magistrate follow the penal sanctions of God's law usually leave us with the position that there are no permanently just standards of punishment, for magistrates are left to themselves to devise their own penal codes autonomously. If some ruler thought that stealing two pennies deserved death, while killing an innocent child deserved the fine of two pennies, many Christian teachers would have no objective way to demonstrate the injustice of this arrangement. Their failure to produce a God-glorifying, scripturally anchored method of knowing what justice demands in particular cases of criminal activity would in principle leave us at the mercy of magistrate despots. When there is no law above the civil law, restraining and guiding its dictates, then human will becomes absolute and fearsome. Before any reader is tempted to turn away from the all-too-obvious proposition that God's revealed law should be followed by the civil magistrate when it comes to crime and punishment, let the reader be clear in his or her own mind just what the alternatives are. In many cases, those who criticize the use of God's penal sanctions, objectively known from the scriptures, have either no alternative or arbitrary tyranny to offer in its place. In addition to asking for the alternative which the critic of God's law has in mind, the reader should make a point of requesting some justifying evidence from scripture for this rejection of the Old Testament law's penal sanctions. This is highly important, for Jesus warned that anyone who taught the breaking of even the least commandment of the Old Testament and the penal commandments are surely commandments found among the law and prophets, would be called least in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19. Unless those who advocate the abolition of these penal sanctions can offer justification for their attitude from the word of God, then their position comes under the heavy censure of Christ himself. Moreover, Paul taught that the law of God was lawfully used to restrain criminals today, being the standard God expected his ministers in the state to use when they wielded their swords. 1 Timothy 1 verses 8 through 10, Romans 13 verse 4. To reject those standards would appear on the face of it to be speaking against the word of the Lord himself on the subject. Are the penalties culturally variable? What reason might someone offer for refusing to endorse the present applicability of the penal sanctions of God's law? It is sometimes suggested, without due reflection, that since the penal sanctions of the law are found among the case laws of the Old Testament, laws whose cultural details are not universally binding, these laws simply teach us that certain crimes should be punished, but not what the punishment should be. Therefore, quote, you shall not allow a sorceress to live, end quote, and, quote, whosoever lies with a beast shall surely be put to death, end quote, Exodus 22, verses 18 and 19, simply teach that those who practice witchcraft or bestiality should be punished in some way, not that they must be punished in a particular way. The underlying principle is alleged to be merely that these acts are punishable. The death penalty is but a variable, cultural detail. As attractive as this suggestion may sound in abstract, after all, it would make it much easier to promote God's law within a secularized culture, it is clear that the suggestion cannot be defended in the face of particular textual and theological realities. For instance, the two texts rehearsed above are specifically worded so as to require more than just any kind of punishment for those who practice witchcraft and bestiality. What is prohibited in Exodus 22.18 is that a witch should be allowed to live. A magistrate who merely finds a witch, i.e. a genuine witch as biblically understood, would transgress this prohibition, allowing thereby what the text forbids, namely, for allowing a witch to live. Exodus 22.19 used an idiomatic Hebrew expression to communicate the certainty of the death penalty for someone committing bestiality. Quote, shall surely be put to death, end quote. The whole point here is that the crime is so heinous that only the death penalty is its just recompense. The arbitrariness of some commentators here is perplexing. 
For example, R.A. Cole writes, quote, Our attitude to perversions of God's natural order can hardly vary from those of the law, while our treatment of offenders will be very different today, end quote. Yet the Hebrew text teaches that our treatment of this crime must not vary. Surely such an offender is to be put to death. If that is not the justice which we endorse, then indeed even our attitude towards the perversion itself is varied from that prescribed by God's law. Someone might convincingly argue that the method of execution, for example stoning, is a variable cultural detail. But the text simply will not support the thesis that the law's penal sanctions are culturally variable. It will not support teaching an open-ended approach to penology, that is, teaching simply that the criminals should be punished, without saying what the punishment should be. The principle taught in such case laws is that the relevant crimes are worthy of this or that specified treatment. The various alternatives for treatment may not be changed around, as though a murderer could be fined and a thief could be executed. It is precisely the equity of God's penal sanctions which precludes any shifting of them around. Yet this shifting of penalties is what the suggestion before us would allow. By saying that the case law teaches no set sanction, but only that there should be some kind of sanction. Such shifting violates the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, etc. We have already seen above that equity characterizes the penal sanctions of God's law. Crimes have meted out to them precisely what justice says they deserve. This is the biblical approach to penology, and to depart from it is to welcome, in principle, arbitrariness, tyranny, and injustice to one's society. No more, no less. No more, no less. Biblical penalties, we are observing, are never too lenient and never too stringent for the cases which they address. Consequently, if a magistrate departs from the strict justice and equity of the biblically prescribed penalties for crimes, then the magistrate must either require more or require less than the law of God. Either way, he will depart from the norm of equity, meeting out what a crime deserves, and thus will be unjust in his judgments, by being either too hard or too easy on criminals. Hebrews 2.2 tells us, contrary to the mistaken assumption of many, that the Old Testament penal sanctions were not heightened or intensified punishments, going beyond what strict justice for society would dictate. The verse declares, as foundational to an a fortiori argument for the eternal justice of God towards apostates, that according to the Mosaic law, the words spoken through angels, Acts 7.53, Quote, every transgression and offense received a just recompense of reward, end quote. God's penalties were not overbearing there, and thus his judgment must be seen as fair towards apostates as well. God never punishes in an unjust manner, one that is too lenient or too harsh. He always prescribes exactly what equity demands. He can be counted on to stipulate a just recompense of reward for every crime. Those who depart from God's penal sanctions, then, are the ones who are unjust. If God says that some crime is to be punished by the magistrate with death, then the crime in question is indeed worthy of death, to use the biblical phrase, for example, Deuteronomy 21:22. One of the strongest endorsements of the justice of the law's penal sanctions is found in the words of the Apostle Paul at Acts 25:11, When he was accused of many grievous things by the Jews, Paul responded, quote, If I am an evildoer, the same expression in Romans 13.4, and have committed anything worthy of death, the law's designation for capital crime, then I refuse not to die, end quote. Paul did not argue that these Old Testament penal sanctions had been abrogated, nor that they were appropriate only for the Jews of the theocracy. 
He rather insisted that they applied at the present time, and he would not seek to avert their requirement. He was willing to submit to divine justice, the justice of God's law, provided, of course, that he had truly transgressed that law. We, too, endorse the justice of God's penal code, if the Bible is to be the foundation for our Christian political ethic. Invalid Attempts to Sidestep Biblical Penology Some Christians have attempted to escape the biblical requirements regarding penal sanctions on crime. Without answering the positive considerations which have been laid out above, they have suggested various reasons why we should not endorse the penal sanctions of the Old Testament law. We can quickly survey some of these reasons. Some say that the use of the death penalty would cut short the possibilities for evangelism. That may be true, but we must avoid portraying God's word as in conflict with itself, as though the evangelistic commission of the church could override the justice demanded by the state. Quote, the secret things, for example, who will be converted, belong unto Jehovah our God, but the things that are revealed, for example, the law's requirements, belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law, end quote. Deuteronomy 29.29 Others appeal to emotion, saying that the penal sanctions of the Old Testament would lead to a bloodbath in modern society. Such a consideration is by its nature a pragmatic concern rather than a consideration for truth and justice. But more importantly, it directly contradicts the Bible's own teaching as to what the effect would be of following God's penal code. Far from leading to numerous more executions, such a practice would make others hear and fear for example, Deuteronomy 17.13, so that few will commit such crimes and need to be punished. God's sanctions bring safety, protection, integrity, and life to a community, not a bloodbath. Some teachers have likened the Old Testament penal sanctions to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, no longer followed in the same way as they were previously because of the work of Christ. However, such penalties were not ceremonial in character, foreshadowing the person and work of the Redeemer, for example, like the sacrificial system. They were not redemptive in purpose or religious in character. While the New Testament shows that the sacrifices, temple, etc. have been laid aside, the New Testament endorses the continuing use and authority of the penal sanctions. They simply are not in the same theological category as the ceremonial laws. The social penalties prescribed by the Old Testament law cannot be seen as fulfilled in the death of Christ, the excommunicating discipline of the church or the final judgment, for none of these deal with social justice within history. Christ did not remove the penalties for social misdeeds, or else Christians could argue that they need not pay traffic fines. The discipline of the church does not remove the need for the state to have just guidelines for penalties in society. And far from confirming social penalties, Waiting for the final judgment removes social penalties for crime altogether. Even if one could argue, with biblical indicators, that the penal sanctions of the Old Testament foreshadowed the final judgment, it would be something else to argue that those penalties did nothing else but foreshadow final judgment. After all, they also dealt with historical matters of crime and punishment, and so they could continue to do so today, while still foreshadowing the coming final judgment. May we abrogate all but one. If the above arguments have proven awkward in light of biblical teaching and logical consistency, one can understand how much more difficult it would be to defend the position that the penal sanctions have been abrogated today except for one, namely the death penalty for murder. Such a position fails to show that the penal sanctions have been laid aside in general. 
At best, it appeals to a fallacious argument from silence, saying that such social penalties were not mentioned, for instance, by Paul when he spoke to the Corinthian church about an incestuous fornicator. Of course, neither did Paul dispute those sanctions, seeing that he was speaking to the church about its response to the sinner, not the magistrate's response. Does his silence challenge or support the validity of the sanctions? Neither, really, for a consideration of silence is logically fallacious. What is important is the presumption of continuing validity taught elsewhere by Christ. Matthew 5.19 and Paul in Acts 25.11, Romans 13.4, 1 Timothy 1 verses 8-10, Hebrews 2.2. Silence cannot defeat that presumption, for the presumption can be turned back only by a definite word of abrogation. Conclusion There is no general repudiation of the penal sanctions in the New Testament, and if there were there would be no textually legitimate way to salvage the penalty for murder. The attempt to limit our moral obligation to the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9-6, is misconceived not only because the New Testament recognizes no such arbitrary limitation, see Matthew 5-17-19, but also because the Mosaic Law is necessary to understand and apply fairly the Noahic stipulation about murderers. For example, the distinction between manslaughter and murder is not drawn in Genesis 9. That Paul in Romans 13 was not limiting the power of the sword to the guidance of Genesis 9 is clear from the fact that Paul recognizes the right of taxation, which is unmentioned in Genesis 9. If the Old Testament sanctions have been abrogated, and we have no reason to think that they have been, then there appears to be no way to salvage the death penalty for murder either. Yet very few evangelicals will content to accept that conclusion, especially since it leaves Paul's words about the magistrate's sword without any application. We must conclude that God's word, even concerning matters of crime and punishment, is dependable and unchanging. Without his guidance, the magistrate would indeed wield the sword in vain. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.